You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. Our Bibles today, Psalm 32. And uh, as you're turning and once you find it, would you stand please out of respect of God's word, Psalm 32. I'm very drawn to to Psalms when I'm in between series, and we're going to be beginning a series in the book of Genesis uh, either uh, next week or the following week. I just want to make sure that I'm ready for the beginning of that. And Brother Mark has helped a lot. Brother Mark Ledoux has been teaching here in Sunday school uh, in the the sanctuary class. He's been doing uh, some study out of Genesis, and I feel like it's helped me delay it a little bit because you don't usually tackle something that big. Uh, without really being ready, and uh, so I'm looking forward to getting started in that and uh, and preaching through that book, and hopefully we'll be we'll be done with that in the next few years. So you never know, uh, a book like that you could spend some time in. Psalm 32. We're going to read the entire psalm here, and uh, I'm going to preach to you this morning about happiness. And this is a little bit of a follow up to a Wednesday night series, a mini series we did a few weeks ago on a merry heart. And I just think it's important for us to understand, biblically speaking, what true happiness is. Psalm 32 gives us a glimpse. Look at what it says in verse 1. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no guile. When I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned into the drought of summer, Selah. I acknowledge my sin unto thee, and mine iniquity have I not hid. I said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin, Selah. For this shall every one that is godly pray unto thee in a time when thou mayest be found. Surely in the floods of great waters... They shall, they shall not come nigh unto him. Thou art my hiding place. Thou shalt preserve me from trouble. Thou shalt compass me about with songs of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct thee and teach thee in the way which thou shalt go. I will guide thee with mine eye. Be ye not as the horse or as the mule which have no understanding, whose mouth must be held in with bit and bridle, lest they come near unto thee. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he that trusteth in the Lord, mercy shall compass him about. Be glad in the Lord, and rejoice, ye righteous, and shout for joy, all ye that are upright in heart. Great uh, encouraging passage, um, but in the middle of it, there's some questions. There's some struggle, there's some confusion, there's some heaviness. I'd like to deal today with the subject of finding true happiness. You can be seated. Thank you for standing for for God's word. May God bless the reading of it. One thing I'm more and more convinced the older I get is that the most special things in life don't come with a price tag. And maybe, maybe you've discovered, I know you have, the older you get, the more you realize that. I remember my children actually teaching me that lesson as they were younger, uh, they, you know, we would at times take them on trips to 
places, you know, where there'd be an amusement park or something really big and fun to do. And we'd take them in, in, in Missouri. There's a place called Silver Dollar City in Branson, Missouri. And we'd take them there and we'd, we'd, we'd pump it up and build it up and get all excited. And we'd take them there when they were young. And, and, and yet there were times that we would say, okay, kids, uh, we're going to the library today. And they would be just as excited. And I'm thinking $60 a ticket at Silver Dollar City or the library for free. I mean, it, it was just as special to them to go to something like that. I remember we would agonize at times that when they were young over the kind of gifts that we would give them. And we were thinking about their birthdays or we were thinking about Christmas. And yet they would get just as excited at times when I would bring home a sucker from the bank. I mean, they, I wish they were still that excited about things that small, but... I remember when they were small and, and uh, I would tell them bedtime stories. That was their favorite time of the day. I, I would gather them around and I would use their animals as, as props and use them as characters in the story. And, and they would anticipate it so much. But I would always do what every good dad does. And I would every, just about every night leave it with a massive cliffhanger. I, I remember literally leaving the room having stopped the story just before the big part of the story came, and all four of the girls were crying because they didn't finish the story. It was kind of fun to watch. No, 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 I'm not that mean. But it was fun to watch as, as they got older. They started telling stories of their own. I remember one time when Caitlin was about four years old, and I'm, I always seem to pick on Caitlin in here, but she was telling a story, and she didn't know I was listening. And in the story, Caitlin herself, she had three sons, and their, their names were John, Goliath, and Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> Naturally, of course. As a little four-year-old, you know, those are the names you come up with. No, I remember at times when they were small, and I'm reminiscing. We're strolling down memory lane this morning. I remember we would have what we called trampoline time. And uh, if, you, if you've ever homeschooled your children, there's no greater gift than a trampoline, okay? At the, at, when you're at your end, go jump on the trampoline, kids. It's P.E., okay? It's social interaction, go. So they would go, we would go outside at night, and, and uh, it would be cool, not as cool as South Dakota, but plenty cold. And we would grab our blankets and grab our sleeping bags, and we would go out to the trampoline, and, and we would lay on the trampoline and look out under the stars you know, we lived out in the country, there were no lights around us, and we'd look at the stars and wrapped up in our blankets and our sleeping bags, and, and I would just tell them stories sometimes for hours on end. We would just lay out there, and they anticipated that so much, and, and you know, I felt like dad of the year, you know, because that's a simple thing I can do. It didn't cost me any money, and, and they loved it. You know, and you look back on life, and it's those kinds of things that matter the most, it is those things that money cannot buy that matter the most. It, it's the things, the memories, and, and the relationships that we have uh, that we look back on someday. And in spite of what our culture says, that is, those are the kind of things that, wherein happiness lies. And yet our culture says, no, you need to have money, and you need to have the stuff, and you need to have the possessions. And if you don't go to va on vacation uh, on this level or to this place, then you can't be happy. And yet all the time, you see people that have everything except happiness. And King David was a perfect example. He's a man who had it all. And, and he had houses and he had property and he had great wealth and he had all the power you can imagine. But one day he's looking out over a rooftop 
And he sees a woman bathing herself. And rather than doing men, what all of us should do in that situation is that we bounce our eyes to somewhere else. It's what we should all do in that situation. And yet rather than turning away, David kept looking and it turned into lust. It overcame him and it led to an immoral relationship. When news came back that Bathsheba, this woman on the rooftop, was pregnant, then David had her husband Uriah brought home from the battlefield, fighting battles for the, for the kingdom, fighting battles for David. Her husband was. He brought her home to help cover his tracks. Uriah proved to be a better man than David, and he refused to go in unto his wife while the men that he was over were laying on the hard, cold battlefield. And he refused, and so that David desperately had to cover that situation. And so his, his, his uh, alternative, his conclusion, was that he would take care of Uriah. So he sent, by his own hand, he sent a letter to those in the army that were fighting with Uriah to fall back and leave Uriah just hanging out there by himself. And, and it, it ended up taking his life. Once Uriah died, David could marry Bathsheba, and he thought he could conceal his sins. But here's an important point that we all need to remember in everyday life is that God sees everything. He sent that prophet Nathan, and I'm just giving you a rundown. You could preach a series, a whole series on the life of David and especially his failure with Bathsheba. But God sends Nathan, this prophet, to confront David about his transgressions of adultery and murder. And David repents and he confesses his sins to God, but he paid severe consequences for his actions. For years to come, really. You know, I cannot imagine that there was a more miserable time in David's life than the aftermath of that situation with Bathsheba because he knew it was all his fault. He knew that it was his his action, it was his decisions that led him there. You know, you imagine, you know, Saul chased him around the countryside for six or seven years trying to take his life, but even living in a cave and living... Uh, every day wondering if Saul and his army would show up to try to take your life. I, I, I can't imagine that that was more miserable than what David felt after he had committed the sin with Bathsheba. It's after David sinned with Bathsheba that he wrote that great psalm of repentance, Psalm 51. And at some point, go back and read that, and you find out David is at his most miserable when he is, has just committed sin. Psalm 32 is a song written by David. My Bible has this heading, maybe yours does too, under Psalm 32. It says, a psalm of David, Maskeel. And that word Maskeel means there is a, this is a psalm of instruction. That word Maskeel, anytime you see it, it means it's there to teach us something. It's not this, just there. Some psalms are there to praise God and lift up our voices and rejoice in God. But this is written to teach us. Look at verse 8. It says, I will instruct thee and teach thee in the, in the way which thou shalt go. I will guide thee with mine eye. So right there it proves that this is a psalm of instruction. David is trying to teach us something. And so what is he trying to teach us? What's he trying to instruct? Well, look at the very first word of the psalm. Psalm 32, verse 1. What is it? You tell me. It's blessed or blessed. Say it again together. Ready? Blessed. Okay, blessed. Sometimes it, it's blessed or blessed, however you want to say it. But the word means happy. The word means joyful. The word means content. Now look at the last verse. Look what the last verse says. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, ye righteous, and shout for joy, all ye that are upright in heart. 
If all we had was the first word, blessed, and the last verse, be glad in the Lord, then obviously, then this is a psalm to teach us how to be happy. This is a psalm to tell us how we can be at our most content, how we can be our most joyful, how we can be glad in the Lord. So what would you expect it to say right there in the middle? I mean, from blessed or happy to be glad and rejoice at the end. What do you think that the stuff in between would say? Well, if our culture was writing this psalm, it would say, blessed is the man, happy is the man, and here's the stuff in between. If you want to be happy, you need to make more money. And our culture would write 10 or 11 verses on making more money. Blessed, happy, you want to be that stuff? Okay, to be happy, you need more stuff. You need a nicer house. Once you get that nicer house, you'll be happy. You need a more expensive car. You need, a, the better, you need the best clothes you can buy. You need to shop here. You need to hang out here. You need to eat here. To be happy, you need to be financially independent and retire early to be happy. To be happy, you need to fall in love and raise a family and have a successful career. You need to have the right friends and, and you need to be popular at school, young people. You need to be in good shape and and take care of yourself and you need to travel the world. Those are the things that will make you happy. And it's, I mean, it's true that those things have their place. And it's true that those things can be positive and those things can be helpful. But David doesn't one time in this psalm connect happiness with any of the things I just mentioned. Not one time does he come out and say, if you want to be happy, you've got to travel the world. Not one time does he say, if you want to be happy, then you have to have more stuff and become a king because I'm telling you, that's the life. No, he was a man with the world at his disposal. He had as much in his day as the richest men on earth have today. Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates and and all of those guys. You look at those guys, King David had what they had. But when he sits down to write out a song, instructing people on how to be happy, he doesn't mention any of it. Instead, I can picture him thinking back, and maybe you can picture him too. He's at a, maybe at a writing desk, and, and he's sitting there, and he's thinking about all the ups and downs of his life, and, and maybe he's thinking about the mountaintops, and over here you have a mountaintop experience, and what would you say? You tell me. Uh, think about David. Where, what, what would his mountaintop experience, off the top of your head, what, what would you think it'd be? Defeating Goliath. That's the first thing I come. So he's sitting there at his writing desk, and he's writing out, Uh, his happy times and thinking about his happy times. And in his mind, he's thinking, Goliath, well, that was a happy time. But then on the other hand, he's thinking about what's my lowest point. And I would say again, I don't believe it was when King Saul was chasing him around the countryside. I believe his lowest point was probably, hi, Miss Sandy. This is a little, I'm going to come over here. Um, His lowest point wasn't running around the countryside. I believe his lowest point was after Bathsheba. So you have mountains and you have valleys. And in his mind, he's thinking about all of these things. And he's thinking about happiness. And he wants to instruct on how to be happy. And you know what he doesn't say? He doesn't say, get some good armor, get really good with a sling, and you can go out. If you go out and you'll defeat a giant like I did, that's when you can be happiest. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, oh, listen, if you want to be happy, go get a throne, become a king, experience experience great wealth. No, he's not even talking about that. No, the the most blessed moments or happiest moments of his life came according to this passage when he experienced God's forgiveness after committing sin. 
See, as great as everything else was, none of it was as significant to David as being right with God. And we learn from David that being right with God is the happiest you will ever be. But you'll understand you cannot be right with God unless you are forgiven. So he gives us three important things about forgiveness that every person can learn. And the first is this. Forgiveness is the key to happiness. Forgiveness is the key to happiness. Look what he says in verses 1 and 2. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no guile. He does not say, blessed is the man with a great home. Blessed is the man with the best job. Blessed is the man with the best clothes. Blessed is the man who has everything he could ever want. He doesn't mention any of this stuff. You know, he says, blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven. I read a quote one time from Jim Carrey. He's a famous actor, and, and uh, he said this, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer. If money could buy happiness, folks, then all the rich people in the world would be happy and all the poor people in the world would be unhappy. But you and I both know that's not the case. John Stossel of ABC, he did a report one time about lottery winners. And according to this professor named David Myers, he's arguably, according to Stossel, the nation's foremost expert on the study of happiness. Here's what he said. I don't mean to minimize the trauma. But you tell me that you have in mind someone who more than a year ago became uh, paralyzed in a car accident or won a million dollars in a state lottery and you've given me virtually no clue as to their personal happiness today. Stossel went on to say, studies of lottery winners found that within a year, most say they are no happier than they were before they won. Folks, happiness isn't connected to what we have in life. It is dependent on where we stand with God. I'll say it again. Happiness is not connected to where we are or what we have in life. It is dependent on where we stand before Almighty God. See, God created us for fellowship. And when he placed Adam and Eve in the garden, he did it with this desire that he would have a relationship, a fellowship with them. And things were going great until Satan came along and they gave in to the temptation and sinned. And God, who is holy, he cannot be in the presence of sin. And for the first time in creation, God and man did not have that perfect, sinless, unhindered relationship Sin drove a wedge between God and man and it prevented that relationship of fellowship from taking place. So from that moment, what we had found satisfaction in, what Adam and Eve were enjoying and and had found fulfilling in that relationship with God, now there's suddenly a huge barrier called sin. That incredible thing that that through, I mean, through all of this, what I can't get over is that God didn't just get rid of them. You know what that proves to us? That after they sinned, that God didn't just kind of start over, is that he, is, he wants communion. He wants fellowship with us. And it's remarkable to think that he'll go to such lengths to maintain a, a relationship, a fellowship with mankind. I mean, considering all that we did and all that we've done and all that Adam and Eve did, that God would still pursue mankind. And David spends the first four verses highlighting God's mercy 
even though we are sinners. He says, blessed is the man in verse 1, blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. And that word transgression means it's the same idea that if there's a boundary, a property line, and there's a line that says do not cross or do not pass this fence, and you see the sign, and yet you step over it, that's what transgression means. He says, blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. Forgiven means to take it away. Folks, you realize even though you're a sinner and even though we sin willfully before God and even though there's a line that's been drawn and we still choose to cross it, God can take our sins away. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. He says, blessed is the man. Blessed is he whose whose sin is covered. That word sin means like if you were to take a bow and arrow and you were trying to aim at something and you shoot that arrow, you release it and you completely miss the target which would be about what I would do if I was trying to shoot a bow and arrow. But sin, that's what it means. It means to miss the mark. It means that we have aimed at something and we didn't hit it. And yet, according to these verses, our sins, blessed is he whose sin is covered. That means it's no longer regarded. It means that God doesn't forget it. I don't necessarily love that terminology, but the Bible says that he remembers it no more. See, I don't think that we should look at God when it comes to our sin like, oh, he just forgot. No, he remembers it no more, which is a very active decision to no longer hold our sin against us. So when we miss the mark, the Bible says that God will recover it as if it never happened. And God in his sovereignty who knows everything will look at us like he doesn't even know that we sinned. He says also in verse 2, blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity. That, that phrase, imputeth uh, not iniquity, impute means to lay on one's charge. Iniquity is to twist or make crooked. So when we twist our lives up and we make crooked our lives and we mess up and we kind of pervert the things and the plan that God had for us, it says that he imputes not that, he doesn't lay it on our charge. You know whose charge our sin gets laid on? Jesus Christ. Because he paid for it. So blessed is the man, blessed is the person, is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no guile. You know what that means? Guile is deceit. Guile is dishonesty. Specifically, it's hypocrisy. And yet in these verses, if we're to believe what they say, then God has made a provision for us, even as sinners, even as transgressors, even though we've, we've done guile and we've been fake and we've been hypocrites and we've missed the mark and we've stepped over the line, God has made provision for every person that's ever lived or walked on this earth to have their sins forgiven, to have their iniquities washed away, to not impute those things that we've done to our own charge, but to take it on himself. You know what this shows us? Even though we sin, God wants restoration. Even though we sin, God pursues us. And if anybody knows anything about this, it's David. Here's David saying, take it from me, folks. I stepped over the line. I missed the mark. I came up short. I pretended to be something I was not. If anybody knows about failing God, it's me because I've committed murder. I've committed adultery. I've ruined a family. But God has, here's David, here's what David's perspective would be. But God has made a way for me to be restored in my relationship with him. 
I had it all. I had riches and I had houses and power and any relationship I wanted, I could have it. But nothing has resulted in the kind of happiness that I've had after God forgave my sins. If anybody knows how grateful a person should be for forgiveness, it's David. I mean, his first thought in this instruction on happiness is that forgiveness is the key to happiness. The second instruction is that God wants forgiveness as much as I do. God wants forgiveness as much as we do. And you say, well, how do you see that? Well, I think first, the fact that all, he's gone to these links to restore, that's pretty obvious. But I look at verses 3 and 4. It says, when I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. I think he'd been shoveling snow for a few days. You know, when I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned into the drought of summer. You ever, have you ever been there? You ever been there after you've sinned? And you've done something you knew you, shouldn't, you should not have done? And in, in when you, before you took care of it, he says the bones waxed old. I had a heaviness in my chest. Day and night, it's like thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned into the drought of summer. I was sweating or crying and, and I couldn't get away from it. This is a very desperate feeling. Have you been there? So you know what this is called? It's called conviction. Holy Spirit conviction. See, God has placed within us this mechanism called conviction that when we have sinned, when we're separated from God, we feel this burning sense of guilt even in our bodies. And I don't know how to explain it, but listen, here, here's what we can come to, is if you were created to, be, to have fellowship with the Father, that means that it, your relationship with God should look like this. And so when we're not like this, and there's separation between us, what happens is conviction fills in the gap. And it lets us know we're not where we're supposed to be. And it weighs on us. And it literally affects our bodies. It literally feel we feel something in our bodies that there is something wrong, that there's something not right. He's saying my, my bones were aching. They roared due to, due to the conviction. My, when sin is unconfessed and it has no outlet, it's like a disease that rages on the inside. He says day and night he was feeling God's strong hand pressing on him and no matter what he did to get his mind off of the conviction nothing was helping the dry and parched feeling would not go away this is not very encouraging is it charles spurgeon wrote better to suffer all the diseases which flesh is heir to than lie under the crushing sense of the wrath of almighty god better a world on the shoulder like atlas than god's hand on the heart like david See, there's nothing more miserable. There's nothing more miserable than the feeling of conviction after sin. And you know, a lot of people, their response to sin is they hate it. And they run away from it. And they think God is mean because of it. But listen, I want, to, I want you to get this today. Don't misinterpret conviction. Don't misinterpret conviction. And by that, I mean it is not God's way of punishing you. It's not God's way of, of making sure that you feel really bad about it so you don't sleep at night. No, God, conviction from God is an act of mercy. It is proof that God wants us to realize when our relationship with him is not right. 
Conviction means that God is working in our lives. And remember, if we're supposed to be like this in our relationship and we're stretched away and we've got, we're pulled away from God and there's sin in between, the conviction is him tugging on our hearts to let us know that things are not right. We would not know we were in danger of his judgment if there was no conviction. It's there to tell us that we have short, we have fallen short of God's, of God's standard. It's there to let us know that we're not where we ought to be. It's there to tell us that, that we need to make things right. Proverbs 3.12 says, For whom the Lord loveth, he correcteth, even as a father the son in whom he delighteth. That tugging on your heart, folks, and you may even feel it this morning, that tugging on your heart is proof that God wants a relationship with you. He proves it. He all, not only through conviction, but he proves it through his word, through the law, that, that he sends us his word so we have a standard by which to measure ourselves. And we see that we fall short. The law is our measuring stick. But the greatest proof that God wants restoration is on the wall behind me, that cross. If you've ever wondered whether or not God wants a relationship with mankind, the fact that he convicts you, the fact that he gave you his word, and the fact that he sent his son to die on a cross like that is proof that God wants a relationship with you. He wants to be restored, and yet we're very often content to just stay right where we are in misery, in conviction. And yet we find in this passage that there is a way for that conviction to go away. You don't just ignore it till it's gone. No, that conviction should lead to something. We know that God wants a relationship. We know that forgiveness is the key to happiness and that he wants to forgive our sins. So is that it? I mean, is is that all we have to do? Well, David's about to get to the real instructive part of the song. Here it is. That forgiveness starts when we accept responsibility. See, forgiveness is the key to happiness, and God wants to forgive. He wants to restore. But forgiveness starts. We're the ones that turn it on. It starts when we accept responsibility. Now, just, just yesterday, I was um, using this, the snowblower for the first time that somebody gave me. And if you know anything about me, me and mechanics, I mean, I'm good at a few things. That's not one of them. Brother Spencer left us his snowblower, so it's been sitting in the garage, and all it's been good for so far is we bump the car door with it from time to time. So these things are big. So I started trying to get it going, and I'm playing with it a little bit, and I get some help from him, and all, I mean, these just a bunch of different little things. You know how every snowblower has its own personality and its own list of things, and you have to hold your leg like this and your tongue like that to start it, you know? It is, only if you do everything just right will it get started. And that Brother Spencer's trying to t- talk me through it and walk me through it. And so I, I, I tried to start it for a while, and after a while, I started smelling gas. And I'm like, I've probably flooded this thing. And, and so I just went out, and you know how the, the snow plows, as thankful as I am for the road crews, after you've done really good on your driveway, they come by and they block you in, you know, with a mound of hard snow about this tall. And I was all proud of myself for getting my driveway done. Then I walked back out after they came through, and I was just, I mean, that's when I tried to fire up the snowblower. <laughs> but then I couldn't get it started. So I, I left it and let the gas smell and went outside and, and started shoveling uh, the snow fort that they graciously left in front of our driveway. It took me about an hour. 
After about an hour, I went back in and walked back up to that snowblower and, and gave it kind of a little stink eye, you know. And then I reached over and hit start, played with the throttle a little bit, and guess what? Fired right up, laughing at me all the, all the way. It, I, it literally sat and watched me shovel my driveway. But you know, uh, that snowblower, as good as it is and as helpful as it is, uh, it does me no good unless it, unless it starts up. It did me no good yesterday. And you know, forgiveness is great. Forgiveness is the key to happiness. It's the key to happiness. And that conviction that God has given us is proof that he wants to, be, he wants to restore your, a relationship with you. He wants you to be forgiven. He wants you to experience what it's like to be happy. He wants you to be blessed. He wants you to be glad. He wants you to rejoice. But forgiveness is kind of like the snowblower sitting in your, in your garage. Unless you fire that thing up, unless you start the process, it doesn't do any good. It just takes up space in the garage. You have to start the process. See, forgiveness is one of those gifts that God gives us if we're willing to receive it. It's one of those gifts that he wants to give everybody, but we have to be the ones that say, yes, God, it's time I want this. You have to initiate it. it. You have to go and you have to play with it a little bit and you have to get it started and you have to fire it up. Forgiveness doesn't just, it's not one of those gifts that he just gives everybody. It comes to the humble. It comes to the one that accepts responsibility for their actions. Look at David's language. Verse 5, he says, I acknowledged my sin. See, confession starts with you being honest about your sin. And truth is, you might think that you're above it, but we've all sinned. You're not. Personal responsibility is not popular today. And it's personal responsibility is not one of those things that everybody embraces. And in case you were wondering about that and you don't believe that, go Google, not right now, don't, don't do this right now, but Google this, frivolous lawsuits. Because I did that this week in preparation for this. I Googled frivolous lawsuits because I thought, I mean, what, what are some lawsuits that people do, that people file in order to not take personal responsibility? And you'll get some crazy lawsuits. People that don't want to take responsibility for the craziest things. Criminals trying to rob a place that get hurt and they're, are, they're filing lawsuits against the homeowners. I read this, uh, a lawsuit, uh, there's a, a man, and in, in, I think he's in Russia, and he, he has filed a lawsuit against an American video game company for the game I've never played it called Fallout 4. Okay? I've never played it, I don't know what it's about, and, but he, play, he says that it ruined his life. Because of his addiction to Fallout 4, he lost his, his family, he lost his wife, he lost his job, he lost his home, he lost everything he had, and it was all the video game's fault. I mean, of course. That's the mentality, thank you, that's the only amen I'll get all morning, but in the wrong spot. Thank you, Ryan. But you know, that's, that's, the, that's the culture we live in. Nobody likes to take personal responsibility. Nobody likes to say, yes, it was me. I mean, if you've ever wondered about that, just go watch the impeachment trial this week and and just see how responsible people want to be for their own actions. But David said that if you want to fire this thing up, if you want to earn forgiveness, you can't earn it on your own. But if you want God to grant his forgiveness, you have to get the process started by acknowledging your sin. Look what else he says. I acknowledge my sin unto thee, and mine iniquity have I not hid. Here's the second part of confession. It's not just saying, yes, I did it, but it's admitting that you're guilty for it. 
See, there's a difference between saying that something happened and saying that, yes, I deserve to pay for this. It's one thing to say, yes, I committed this act. And then most people at that point will step back and say, but I don't have, I don't owe anybody anything for it. And see, the confession is not just saying, yeah, I took responsibility. I know this happened. No, confession is coming along afterwards and saying, not only did I do it, but I'm guilty. And whatever the consequence is, I'm willing to pay it because that's what I deserve. Look what else he says at the end of verse 5. He said, I said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord. I will confess. The Hebrew word for confess is yada. You've probably heard that, yada, yada. That phrase before, that's literally where it comes from. It's just like you're just throwing stuff out there. That's what it means. You know, it's also the same word for praise. Yada. Confess and praise are the same words. When we praise God, we just throw his praise out there. We're not holding anything back. We're not reserving anything. When you sing, you should, by the end of the song service, you should throw it out there so much that your voice is just about hoarse. Don't hold it back. That's the word. When you praise, you throw it out there. Well, confess is the same way. It's the same word. It's just confess here. And this instead of means throwing out praise, this means you throw out your confession. When you sin, you don't hold it back. You don't try to hide it. You don't try to cover it up. You take personal responsibility by throwing it out there and you confess your sin. And here's what I want to get to today is that when you sin, don't hold it in. Don't try to hide it. Don't blame it on somebody else. Every time you sin, get in the habit of throwing it out to God, the confession. Don't let that account stack up. Don't let it build up. I mean, you know, I was trying to explain this to one of my kids recently about put it on my tab. That doesn't happen anymore because nobody's trustworthy. But it used to be that you could go into a place and you could pick something up and say, put it on my tab. I was explaining it to my son. And I said, it used to be you could go and, you know, put something on your tab and it just builds up. And then when you want to pay it, you go in and pay it, maybe like once a month. But you don't want that thing to get so big that you can't pay it all at once and then it comes back to bite you. So what do you want to do? You want to make sure you keep a short account. You keep that tab low. Every week, every day. Really, it's best to just pay it when you get it. Well, that's what it means. And that's what we should be doing when it comes to confession. Don't hold it in. Don't try to hide it. Don't try to shift the blame. When you do something and conviction of God comes in your life, throw it back right back to him and say, God, I know I just sinned. It's a, I confess that sin to you. Please forgive me and help me not to sin again. Don't let the, stat, the account stack up. You need to make sure we need to be in the habit of yada. Confess. Confess to God. Make it a habit. And here's why. Because when you confess, he forgives. A lot of people, in verse 6, it says, This shall everyone that is godly pray unto thee in time when thou mayest be found. Surely in the floods of great waters they shall not come nigh unto him. Here's why you need to confess. What that verse is saying is that most people wait till it's too late. They wait and the floodwaters are high. If you wait till the floodwaters are high, you're not going to get that door open. So rather than stacking it up, rather than being stubborn, Rather than holding on to the sin, every time you sin, let me challenge you this morning to yada. Confess. Don't hold it back. Don't blame it on somebody else. Don't try to hide it. 
No, you take personal responsibility and take care of it because when you do, 1 John 1, 9 says, God doesn't turn a sinner away. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us. Folks, forgiveness is the only way to escape God's judgment. And we're not going to get into it much, but if you look down in verses 10 and 11, it says, Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he that trusteth in the Lord mercy shall compass him about. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, ye righteous. There's two categories of people. There's wicked in verse 10 and the righteous in verse 11. The wicked have not yadded. The wicked are not in the habit of confessing. The righteous, though, they have confessed. And according to verse 10, it says there are many sorrows when you don't confess. You're stacking up the judgment. Well, according to the verse 11, the opposite is true for those righteous. If there's many sorrows for the wicked, there are many blessings for the righteous. So listen, you're choosing whether you live a life with many sorrows or many blessings. And it all comes down to your willingness to forgive, to ask God for forgiveness, to confess. And folks, I don't know, I don't know about you, but I don't want many sorrows. I want blessings. I want happiness. I want to be able to be glad in the Lord. I want to be able to rejoice. I want to shout for joy. I want to be upright in the Lord. I don't want many sorrows, like verse 10 says. But if I don't confess my sins, that's what I'll get. Your happiness as a human starts with forgiveness, God's forgiveness. You know, one thing I were, you know, it's funny. You know, I talked about car washes when we first got here and how confused I was about the car washes. But listen, it's so true. You don't see the salt. I mean, it's all over the road, but you don't see it. And you don't see it on your car. I mean, maybe you can if it gets to be too much. But for the most part, you don't really notice it until it starts to corrode and eat away at your vehicle. If you let it stack up, if you let it just keep stacking up, then someday you'll have a car and it'll bring you many sorrows. And the same thing is true with our relationship with God. If you just let it stack up, then you're not going to be called blessed or happy. You're not going to be rejoicing. You're not going to be shouting for joy. You'll have many sorrows. And it's all because that one habit that you should have started, yada. When I sin, I will yada. When I sin, I will confess. Because regular cleaning produces many blessings and prevents many sorrows. So my question to you today is how happy are you? And I know life isn't all about being happy, but it doesn't take long to read the Bible. Even Jesus Christ in Matthew 5, what did he say? Blessed is the man. Blessed is the man. You know what? God wants you to be happy. He wants you to be happy. He wants you to experience happiness and fulfillment. But it all comes to about where you stand with God. So where do you stand? Maybe you have an anger problem. Maybe you have a lust problem. Maybe in your life there's some sin that you just can't seem to get over. God will and wants to forgive it. You just have to take responsibility, confess, yada, and get some help. 
but he wants to restore. Maybe there's some secret sin nobody knows about, but God knows. Might as well confess it and forsake it. Proverbs 28, 13, he'll forgive. Maybe you've been a hypocrite. Again, God sees everything. He knows where our hearts are. Have you left sins unconfessed for a long time? Friends, God can handle them. Not only that, he wants to handle them. He went to great lengths to have a relationship with you. That's where you'll find happiness. Take it to the cross. Because a happy person is a forgiven person. And a forgiven person is willing to humble themselves before God and yada. Every day, every hour, sometimes, I don't know if this is the way for you like it is for me, sometimes it's every minute. Sometimes it comes and comes so quick and I, if I let it stack up, I'll forget. Make a habit of being as quick to cast out confession and as quickly and frequently as the sin comes. And you say, well, what's at stake? Well, not much. Just your happiness. I reminded that kid's song. I'm so happy and here's the reason why. How does it go? Jesus took my burdens all away. Now I'm singing as the days go by. Jesus took my burdens all away. What's the next part? Once my heart was heavy with a load of Jesus took the load and gave me. And if you want to be fancy, wonderful peace within my heart or gave me peace within. Now I'm singing. Look at the last verse of this chapter. Now I'm singing. I'm shouting for joy. Here's the reason why. Or as the days go by, because Jesus took my burdens all away. I know it's probably not cool to sing a kid's song in here, but there's a lot of truth in that song, folks. You want to be happy? You're not going to find it at your house or in your car or in your job or in your bank account or even a relationship. You will find it when your sins have been forgiven. Every head bowed, every eye closed. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.